when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost Lord Jesus. Stately plump bug bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Friends of Shakespeare and Company read Ulysses by James Joyce. Read today by Cressida Brown. A man of high morale. Professor Magnus was speaking to me about you, J.J. O'Malloy said to Stephen. What do you really think of that hermetic crowd, the Opal Hush poets? A.E., the master mystic. <laughs> that Blavatsky woman started it. She was a nice old bag of tricks. A.E. has been telling some Yankee interviewer that you came to him in the small hours of the morning to ask him about planes of consciousness. Magnus thinks you must have been pulling A.E.'s leg. He is a man of the very highest morale. Magnus, speaking about me, what did he say? What did he say? What did he say about me? Don't ask. No, thanks, Professor McHugh said, waving the cigarette case aside. Wait a moment. Let me say one thing. The finest display of oratory I ever heard was a speech made by John F. Taylor at the College Historical Society. Mr. Justice Fitzgibbon, the present Lord Justice of Appeal, had spoken and the paper under debate was an essay, new for those days, advocating the revival of the Irish tongue. He turned towards Miles Crawford and said, you know, Gerald Fitzgibbon, then you can imagine the style of his discourse. <laughs> he is sitting with Tim Healy, J.J. O'Malloy said. Rumour has it on the Trinity College Estates Commission. He is sitting with a sweet thing in a child's frock, Miles Crawford said. Go on. Well, it was a speech, Mark Hugh, the professor said, of a finished orator full of courteous haughtiness and pouring and chastised diction. I will not say the vials of his wrath, but pouring the proud man's contumely upon the new movement. It was then a new movement. We were weak, therefore worthless. He closed his long, thin lips an instant, but eager to be on raised an outspanned hand to his spectacles and with trembling thumb and ring finger touching lightly the black rims steadied them to a new focus impromptu in ferial tone he addressed j j o'malloy taylor had come there you must know from a sickbed that he had prepared his speech, I do not believe, for there was not even one shorthand writer in the hall. His dark, lean face had a growth of shaggy beard around it. He wore a loose neckcloth, and altogether he looked, though he was not, a dying man. His gaze turned at once, but slowly from J.J. O'Malloy towards Stephen's face, 
and then bent at once to the ground to seek him. His unglazed linen collar appeared behind his bent head, soiled by his withering hair. Still seeking, he said. When Fitzgibbon's speech had ended, John F. Taylor rose to reply. Briefly, as well as I can bring them to mind, his words were these. He raised his head firmly. His eyes bethought themselves once more. Witless shellfish swam in the gross lenses to and fro, seeking outlet. He began. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, great was my admiration in listening to the remarks addressed to the youth of Ireland a moment since by my learned friend. It seemed to me that I had been transported into a country far away from this country, into an age remote from this age, that I stood in ancient Egypt and that I was listening to the speech of some high priest of that land addressed to the youthful Moses. His listeners held their cigarettes poised to hear their smoke ascending in frail stalks that flowered with his speech, and let our crooked smokes. Noble words coming. Look out. Did you try your hand at it yourself? And it seemed to me that I heard the voice of that Egyptian high priest raised in a tone of like haughtiness and like pride. I heard his words, and their meaning was revealed to me. From the fathers. It was revealed to me that those things that are good, which yet are corrupted, which neither if they were supremely good, nor unless they were good, could be corrupted. Oh, curse you. That's St. Augustine. Why will you Jews not accept our culture, our religion, and our language? You are a tribe of nomad herdsmen. We are a mighty people. You have no cities nor no wealth. Our cities are hives of humanity, and our galleys, trineen and quadrine, laden with all manner merchandise, borrow from the waters of the known globe. You have but emerged from primitive conditions. We have a literature, a priesthood, an age-long history, and a polity. Bile, child, man, effigy. By the Nile bank, the Bay Marie's kneel, cradle of bulrushes, a man supple in combat, stone horn, stone beard, heart of stone. You pray to a local and obscure idol. Our temples, majestic and mysterious, are the abodes of Isis and Osiris, of Horus and Amun-Ra, yours serfdom, awe and humbleness. Ours thunder and the seas. Israel is weak and few are her children. Egypt is an host, and terrible are her arms. Vagrants and day-labourers are you called. The world trembles at our name. <clears throat> the tub belch of hunger cleft his lip. 
though Tom belched of hunger, cleft his speech. He lifted his voice above it boldly. But, ladies and gentlemen, <coughs> had the youthful Moses listened to and accepted that view of life, had he bowed his head and bowed his will and bowed his spirit before that arrogant admonition, he would never have brought the chosen people out of their house of bondage, nor followed the pillar of the cloud by day. He would never have spoken with the eternal amid lightnings on Sinai's mountaintop, nor never have come down with the light of inspiration shining in his countenance and bearing in his arms the tables of the law graven in the language of the outlaw. He ceased and looked at them, enjoying silence. Ominous for him! J.J. O'Malloy said, not without regret. And yet he died without having entered the land of promise. <laughs> A sudden, at the moment, though from lingering illness, often previously expectorated demise, Lenehan said, and with a great future behind him. The troop of bare feet was heard rushing along the hallway and pattering up the staircase. That is oratory, the professor said uncontradicted. Gone with the wind, hosts at Mother Mask and Tara of the Kings, miles of ears of porches, the Tribune's words howled and scattered to the four winds. A people sheltered within his voice, dead noise, Akasic records of all that ever, anywhere, wherever was, love and lord him. Me, no more. I have money. Gentlemen, Stephen said, as the next motion on the agenda paper, may I suggest that the House do now adjourn? You take my breath away. Is it not perchance a French compliment? Mr. O'Baden Burke asked. Tis the hour, methinks, when the wine jug, metaphorically speaking, is the most grateful in ye ancient hostelry. <laughs> that it be, and hereby is resolutely resolved. All who are in favour say aye, Lenehan announced. The contrary, no. I declare it carried. <laughs> to which particular boozing shed? <laughs> My casting vote is Mooney's. He led the way, admonishing. We will sternly refuse to partake of strong waters, will we not? <laughs> yes, we will not, <laughs> by no manner of means. Mr. O'Madden Burke, following closely, said with an ally's lunge at his umbrella, Lay on, Macduff. <laughs> Chip off the old block, the editor cried, slapping Stephen on the shoulder. Let us go. <laughs> Where are those blasted keys? He fumbled in his pocket, pulling out the crushed tight sheets. Foot and mouth, I know. That'll be all right. That'll go in. Oh, where are they? That's all right. He thrust the sheets back and went into the inner office. Let us hope. J.J. O'Malloy, about to follow him in, said quietly to Stephen. 
I hope you will live to see it published. Miles, uh, one moment. He went into the inner office, closing the door behind him. Come along, Stephen, the professor said. That is fine, isn't it? It has the prophetic vision. Wee Ilium, the sack of windy Troy, kingdoms of this world, the masters of the Mediterranean are fellahin today. The first newsboy came pattering down the stairs at their heels and rushed out into the street, yelling, Racing special! Dublin, I have much, much to learn. They turned to the left along Abbey Street. I have a vision too, Stephen said. Yes, the professor said, skipping to get into step. Crawford will follow. Another newsboy shot past him, yelling as he ran. Racing special! Dear Dirty Dublin. Dublins. Two Dublin Vestals, Stephen said. The elderly and pious have lived fifty and fifty-three years in Bum Valley's Lane. Where is that? The professor asked. Off Blackpits. Damp night reeking of hungry doe against the wall face glistening tallow under her fustian shawl frantic hearts akasic records quicker darling on now dare it let there be life they want to see the views of dublin from the top of nelson's pillar they save up three and ten pence in a red tin letterbox money box they shake out the threepenny bits and a sixpenny and coax out the pennies with a blade of knife Two and three in silver and one and seven in coppers. They put on their bonnets and best clothes and take their umbrellas for fear it may come on to rain. Wise virgins, Professor McHugh said. Life on the raw. They buy one and four pence worth of brawn and four slices of pan loaf at the North City dining rooms in Marlborough Street from Miss Kate Collins, proprietess. They purchase four and twenty ripe plums from a girl at the foot of Nelson's pillar to take off the first of the brawn. They give two threepenny bits to the gentleman at the turnstile and begin to waddle slowly up the winding staircase, grunting, encouraging each other, afraid of the dark, panting, one asking the other, have you the brawn? Praising God and the Blessed Virgin, threatening to come down, peeping at the air slits. <laughs> Glory be to God, they had no idea it was that high. Their names are Anne Kearns and Florence McCabe. Anne Kearns is the lumbago for which she rubs on Lord's water given her by a lady he got a bottle for from a passionist father. Florence McCabe takes a crew bin and a bottle of double X for supper every Saturday. <laughs> Antithesis, the professor said, nodding twice. Vestal virgins, I can see them. <laughs> What's keeping our friend? He turned. A bevy of scampering newsboys rushed down the steps, scampering in all directions, yelling, their white papers fluttering. Hard after them, Miles Crawford appeared on the steps, his hat oralying his scarlet face, talking with J.J. O'Malloy. Come along, the professor cried, waving his arm. He set off again to walk by Stephen's side. 